0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good evening, everyone. So far this week, we have been in John's Gospel and uh, considering different aspects of the person and the authority and realm of, of Jesus Christ. And that is what we're continuing with this evening. You'll recall that on Sunday, perhaps for those of you that weren't there, we considered Christ uh, from John's prologue as the Word of God, the all-personal, all-relational Word, and it's in God's very nature to communicate Himself. He's a relational being and culminates there in the prologue with the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. On Monday, we considered the word of light and life, again from John's prologue. We considered that Christ is our light and is our life. And when we deny light and life to Jesus Christ, we transfer the concept somewhere else, but end up only with death and darkness. And then uh, yesterday, the four witnesses, we were considering the testimony That backs up these incredible claims that are given to us in the prologue. Four witnesses that testify concerning the incarnate word. The first was John the Baptist. The second was the signs. The third was the father. And the final witness was the scriptures themselves. Today I want to come to one of those four witnesses in particular. One of the signs of our Lord Jesus. The sign of transcendence. In John chapter 6. Before we read John 6, uh, I want to read to, to you from Psalm 107, Psalm 107 verse 23 through 32. Psalm hundred and seven twenty three 23 through 32. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Then turning with me to John chapter 6, and reading from verse 15. I want to pick it up at verse 15. John 6 records, first of all, the feeding of the 5,000 and then leads immediately on to Jesus walking on the water. Verse 15, after the feeding of the 5,000, we read, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Got into and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "It is I. Do not be afraid." Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. We've seen that the whole narrative of John's gospel was written with a distinct purpose, that these things are written that you might believe, and that believing you might have life in his name. The very purpose of John's gospel is to deal with the identity of Jesus Christ and the related Issues of his authority and his power in the sign that immediately precedes this sign of transcendence where Jesus walks on the sea. He has fed 5,000. Where he has shown himself to be the greater Moses. This time not manna in the wilderness in the desert, but by the direct provision of Christ himself, he feeds the multitude probably 20,000 or more 5,000 men. And it's the occasion, actually, of the walking on the water is brought about because of the significance of this previous miracle. The crowd has been so impressed, so overwhelmed by this previous sign that they have an immediate objective with respect to Christ. That's why I read to you verse 15. They wanted to make him king by force. They were going to seize him. Jesus recognized this. He perceived this. And this leads on to this miraculous demonstration of Christ's true identity. We can't understand Jesus walking on the water. I don't believe this this miracle, which isn't just a, a children's story for Sunday school, which is what often it's reduced to in our thinking. We can't understand it. Unless we understand that what occasioned it was an effort to make Jesus king by force. The crowd wanting to make Christ king by force. So we're told that he departed alone. He withdrew himself from the crowd alone. According to the synoptic gospels. He encourages his disciples to depart by boat. Whilst he possibly dismissed the crowd or eluded the crowd. Or told them he would catch up shortly. We're not exactly sure why the disciples left in advance of Jesus. They may have thought that he had another vessel available. They may have uh, planned to wait for him a certain time, and then when it got to dark, they thought, well, maybe he's not coming right now, so we'll go ahead on our own anyway. We're not entirely sure. But you can read about this same miracle in Matthew 14, verses 23 following, and Mark 6, 47 following, and we get more color and more shade in the accounts in the synoptics. So, uh, for example, we read in the synoptics about Peter walking out on the water to Jesus. John doesn't focus on that. He just gives us a bare outline. And I think the reason for this is that John's emphasis is quite simply to show Christ's total authority and power over the created order in order to help answer the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? The first thing then is twilight on the sea for the disciples. I think that when this event took place, as the disciples were waiting for the Lord, and as they pushed their boats out and began to row or began to sail, but these boats were capable of either, they were perplexed by what had just happened. They've just seen Jesus show himself to be greater than Moses. Take a few loaves of bread and some fish and multiply them. And what happens is what many of the disciples were hoping would happen. The crowd want to make him king. They recognize something utterly remarkable about Jesus. Wasn't Christ the Messiah king? Isn't this who, we, who we're walking with, who we're talking with? Why would he reject this coronation? Surely that's what he's here for. Surely this is the deliverance we've been waiting for. This is bread from heaven. The greater Moses is amongst us. Let's make him king. Why would he reject being made king? Liberating Israel from their political bondage. I mean, the zealots, Simon the zealot, probably Judas Iscariot as well, were determined to see Israel loosed from their bondage from the Maccabean period onward. There was a recognition that Israel was in subjugation and the messianic hope had become a political hope. A hope that the Messiah would come and liberate the nation state of Israel and bring it to its final and full manifestation. Jesus has now refused twice, once to be a bread king... And also to be a miracle king. Why is he refusing? You see, Jesus' purpose was to call attention to his his redemptive work. And as we saw yesterday, not to call attention to himself in terms of works of uh, astonishment just to please the crowd or impress the crowd. His concern was with his redemptive work. No, this crowd has just had its belly full, filled. Here was a new welfare god, possibly. Hey, if we walk with this man, we don't have to work anymore. No work, no responsibility. Bread from heaven, on demand. What could be better than this? They were about to forcibly hail him a king like Caesar. And uh, Rome itself—all totalitarian systems, by the way—depend upon welfareism to placate the mob. Always, entitlement—an entitlement, entitlement mentality—dominated the Roman Empire, and they saw the possibility here of a king who would provide for all of their immediate needs. But you know, God never acts in terms of our own desires and on our terms. He's not a performing monkey for us. He's not there to do our bidding. We can only know God on His terms, and God is not our slave at our beck and call to produce miracles and bread to provide for my comfort and my ease. That's why He refused, of course, to be A king who would be established and appointed by man. You see, kings that men and women appoint can be deposed by who? Men and women. You make one king and you can depose them as king. Anybody made king by human force is susceptible to exactly the same dethronement as any other human king. Christ was showing himself to be a king of an altogether different order... When he manifests his transcendent power as he walks on the water. One commentator has noted this. Listen carefully. Clearly Jesus transcended all human limitations and powers. And yet the multitudes and the disciples wanted him to meet man's expectations. In this case, Judean man. The people saw Jesus in terms of the miracle of the loaves and fishes, not in terms of who and what he had in one way or another declared himself to be. We know that even after the resurrection and at the time of the ascension, the disciples themselves had Judaic expectations and hoped that Jesus would restore the kingdom to Israel. You see that in Acts 1 verse 6. Our Lord told them that the coming of the Holy Spirit would give them a world perspective took a while for the disciples to get a world perspective in fact in acts chapter 10 peter requires a vision from heaven of all the unclean animals coming down out of heaven in a sheet before he's prepared to enter the house of a gentile cornelius but the coming of the holy spirit where all the people of the then known world were assembled jewish proselytes and heard the gospel message in their own language, it began to dawn on the early church that the message of the gospel wasn't just for the Jew, wasn't just for Israel, it wasn't about a geopolitical kingdom, and that they had misunderstood it. Seeking to make Christ what we want in terms of entertainment or performance for us as our servant has been a recurring problem in the history of the church. In fact, much of the Gnostic material and the um, non-canonical traditions and books that were rejected and books that came in the 3rd and 4th century about Jesus present ludicrous stories about him. They're so obviously fabricated. You may have heard about the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas or the secret gospel of this and the secret gospel of that. Well, you soon discover why they're secret gospels. You have Jesus performing parlor tricks for the crowd's amusement. He slides down sunbeams. He, um, he strikes a sporting opponent dead in one of these accounts. That would be quite useful on a Friday at soccer, actually. Um, he, he, in one occasion, raises a boy to life just to vindicate himself in terms of an incident. In fact... We see that these stories are born out of a desire that's been there from very early to make Jesus Christ conform to our image, to do us a service, to fulfill our desires. And that's always a temptation. It's the thing that lies behind all desires to distort Scripture. It's to bend God somehow, bend Christ to our will, to our desires, not let Him be God. Many demands today, not all, but many demands in the contemporary church for the miraculous, especially seen with the celebrity healers that adorn our television sets, often do not have the glory of God in view. But antics to entertain people and human vanity and puerile ambition, not all of it, but much of it, Jesus was not going to satisfy man's pride and vanity. He wasn't going to be made king on their terms as the people's servant. And you know, one of the great dangers that we're wrestling with in our time is the church becomes increasingly humanistic, increasingly man-centered and not God-centered. And so we become interested even only in the doctrine of salvation. The chief end of God is to worship man and enjoy him forever. And that his purpose is only to save me, bless me, heal me, strengthen me, encourage me, pat me on the back, send me on my way. Not asking, what does God want me to do in terms of his kingdom? What's he asking of me? What is my duty and calling in the Lord? There's a stream of thought in today's church as well which I won't dwell on for long, that goes back to the first century, to a heretic called Corinthus. Corinthus. And continues to persist to a degree in the present time. This man insisted that Christ is returning to restore a geopolitical Israel where he's going to rule as a human king and restore temple worship and temple sacrifices and so forth, all on man's terms again. I remember reading what A.W. Tozer, American, but also a man who pastored in Canada, in Toronto, had to say that this particular view he felt had debilitated the church. Been a great disaster for the church in the 20th century. Corinthus was a Jew, and he was the leader of a, a pseudo-Jewish cult. And it was drawing people away, even in the first century, from the teaching of the apostles. He was regarded by the church fathers, in fact, referred to as an arch-heretic or false apostle. A number of important things have been said and noted about him. But he taught, along with the Gnostics, that the created order, the world, was the result of not the creation of the God of Scripture, but of a lesser deity. A lesser deity had created the world. This was a Gnostic belief. He denied the incarnation of our Lord. He declared that Jesus was an ordinary man. He wasn't born of a virgin. And that basically a heavenly spirit, which we call Christ, had descended upon an ordinary man called Jesus and then left him again at the crucifixion. That's actually an idea that's returned in liberal theology. That Jesus was somehow adopted by a divine spirit. wasn't actually the incarnate son of God. And he advocated a doctrine of justification by works. He insisted on the necessity of observing also the ceremonial requirements of the Old Testament law, including circumcision. And over and against the apostles' doctrine, he was the first to teach that the second coming would usher in a literal reign of Christ from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And he claimed that an angel had taught him that doctrine. He was the first to teach it, as far as we're aware. Now, I know I'm going to step on some toes tonight, so you can get me afterwards, okay? Just save it for the moment. Just smile for the time being. According to uh, church tradition, the Apostle John wrote his his gospel, actually, and his letters with with Corinthus especially in mind. There's a very famous account, actually, relating to St. John and and Corinthus, when um, the Apostle John was entering a public bathhouse, and he spotted... Corinthus in the line ahead of him going into the bathhouse. And he, John, is said to have turned around and run back out of the bathhouse saying, let us flee, lest the building fall down, for Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside." Uh, Michael Haken this morning referred to Eusebius, often called the father of church history. His dates are A.D. 260 to 340. And we read in Eusebius a statement derived from an earlier source, from Caius of Rome, whose dates are around A.D. 200. Uh, This is what Eusebius records, and I quote, "...but Corinthus also, by means of revelations which he pretends were written by a great apostle, brings before us marvelous things which he falsely claims were shown him by angels." He says that after the resurrection, the kingdom of Christ will be set up on earth, and that the flesh dwelling in Jerusalem will again be subject to desires and pleasures. And being an enemy of the scriptures of God, he asserts, with the purpose of deceiving men, that there is to be a period of a thousand years for marriage festivals. There are at least two ancient sources, actually, which charge Corinthus as the originator of this doctrine of a geopolitical reign of Christ for a thousand years on the earth. From Jerusalem. You can read all about this in Eusebius ecclesiastical histories. If you want the references, I'll give them to you afterwards. I was recently reading uh, a modern exponent of this particular view. This is relevant to the issue that the Jews were facing as they wrestled with the identity of Jesus because they were wrestling with the same question. What's the role of geopolitical Israel? When's it going to be restored? This uh, American evangelical, who shall remain nameless for the purpose of the tape, but if you want to know who it is, I'm quite happy to tell you afterwards, obsessed with Zionism and the reestablishment of a geopolitical kingdom from Jerusalem, has a huge television ministry, has recently declared that Jesus did not come as the Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior only for the Gentiles. Why? God has another plan for the Jews altogether. Re-establishment of the nation state with christ as their king reigning from a human throne from jerusalem thus we don't preach the gospel to jews don't preach to a jew it's pointless he's not their messiah now this kind of an idea i'm suggesting to you for your consideration and weighing in the light of scripture was precisely the view that the crowd and even the disciples at that time had of jesus that he had come finally as the Messiah to establish this reign geopolitically from Jerusalem. And probably as the disciples were down by the lake waiting for Jesus, they were confused, perhaps a bit bereft. Was their Lord not a king? Why wouldn't he receive this coronation? Hadn't he come to redeem Israel, to restore Israel? What's the problem? So they set out towards Capernaum in a time of darkness and it says Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, I'm gonna take a little bit of license with the text here, but I do so on the authority of some of the ancient commentators. It may be a bit evangelistic, but uh, I think it has value because symbolism is important in scripture. We read that it was now dark and Jesus has not yet come to them. And John, because of because John's purpose in writing this gospel, he's always got this antithesis going on between light and darkness. He's always concerned with communicating in these signs something that is being signified. Many of the ancient commentators in particular see in this not just as description of the light conditions of the time, but... Of the condition of the hearts even of the disciples. Symbols are important in scripture, aren't they? We have bread and wine as the symbol of the body and blood of our Lord. Peter tells us that the ark of God, the ark of Noah, is symbolic of salvation. We're told also that marriage symbolizes Christ and the church. Now that doesn't mean that there was no no ark. There certainly was a historical ark. That doesn't mean there's no true body of Christ. There is the true body of Christ. But symbols are important for us in Scripture. John helps us to understand that all of history is sacramental. It, that is, it's full of signs. It's full of signs. If you look at the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, we see it's filled with signs and symbolism. It's so important for us to notice these. History itself is sacramental. Sign and sacrament carry the same thought. All history, friends, contains God's meaning. Now, as Michael said this morning, history at times may seem murky to us, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. We might not understand why this empire rises and this one falls here and there. But that doesn't mean it's without a purpose or that it's random or that it's not governed by God. Think about the Exodus, for example, which is perhaps the greatest symbol we have in Scripture of salvation from the Old Testament, where the angel of death passes over the houses that have the blood painted on the doorposts after the lamb has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb, symbolizing that Exodus, symbolizing the greater Exodus that Jesus was to accomplish for our salvation you know at the mountain of transfiguration when Elijah and Moses stand with the Lord the scripture there tells us that they discussed the exodus that he was to accomplish in Jerusalem the greater exodus so the exodus itself was pointing forward to this was symbolized this greater exodus an escape from Satan and sin and slavery In the same way that the previous sign here in John 6, this provision of bread was symbolic of Christ, the bread of life. Who is the true bread from heaven. Just as Moses uh, fed the children of Israel with manna in the wilderness that God sent. So we see that when Jesus here is walking on the water. This is not just, oh, what a wonderful story that Jesus says, you know, showing off that he can do remarkable things. He's walking on water. We've got to see this as a sign as John understood it, not just a magic trick. I think there's merit in seeing significance in the darkness as they rode off across the lake. There's worse things in life than facing a storm, isn't there? I mean, a a rainstorm. How about the looming doubts and fears and perplexities and distress that we face on a day to day, weekly, monthly, yearly basis? The challenges that we all face, that's part of the human condition. These fears can cripple us, overwhelm us. Without Christ, we're, scripture says we're without hope and without God in the world. We're lost, we're in darkness. Augustine, with his uh, characteristic eloquence, writes about this passage in his tractates on John's Gospel. He said, rightly, he said, dark, for the light had not yet come to them. It was now dark and Jesus had not come. Darkness increases and Jesus is not yet come. Darkness increasing, love waxing cold, iniquity abounding. These are the waves that agitate the ship. The storms and the winds are the clamors of revilers thence love waxes cold thence the waves do swell and the ship is tossed isn't it true that without the Lord Jesus we're tossed about by darkness and fear and doubt we're so easily overwhelmed aren't we by our doubts our fears our anxieties our concerns our questions have you ever asked yourself the question, or wonder what life would be like today if Christ had not yet come? Imagine your Bible ended at Malachi. And there was no gospel in which, through which to understand the Old Testament. Imagine it finished there and there was no Christ. No incarnation still waiting we'd be saying like the prophets of old i think how long O lord so you can understand the disciples don't be too harsh on them you'd have been one of those saying well come on what when's the coronation this has been their expectation if that's the case we also have to consider that if we are light bearers in the context of darkness how great is the darkness for those around you that don't know christ And how deeply does that concern us? Well, Jesus, the wind walker, finds his disciples soon get into difficulties. They're out there on the lake. They've rowed several miles. Maybe they've had some help from a sail. And they get into difficulties because there's a contrary wind. The lake gets stirred up, and the synoptists tell us that this contrary wind... Finds them in the middle of the lake. Actually, Mark 6, verse 47 tells us they were in the middle of the lake. Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. So from the plains, the wind could come in, drop down, and displacing the, uh, the warmer air, whip up and churn up the lake. Now, this wasn't like, you know, perfect storm, George Clooney and all of that, you know, 300-foot waves. This is a lake. It's an inland lake. But this was still quite serious. The reason being that the boats that they used to fish in, and we have uh, recently archaeologists found a first century fishing boat uh, in this region. They were very low-sided because you had to be able to haul. You're on a lake after all. You're not expecting major problems. And you had to be able to haul large net loads of fish over the side of the boat. Now, that's uh, pretty tricky if you've got a high-sided boat, you needed a low-sided boat. So when waves on the Sea of Galilee were reached higher than two or so feet, you had a problem. You started taking on water. And at this point, they are in real distress and in real peril. Now, it's fascinating reading liberal commentators on this, and I don't know whether any of you got this at school. I did. That uh, some have suggested that Jesus was in fact seen walking on the shore, Um, and that they'd rowed several miles, but they'd rowed along next to the shore. So they actually weren't out in the middle of the lake, they were on the shore, and as they looked, seasoned fishermen as they were, they thought, oh, there's somebody walking on the water. It's very convincing, isn't it? These people were seasoned fishermen. They weren't dusty academics stuck in a study. And they did know about the, the lake and the sea and fishing. So they weren't likely to be fooled by something like that. Secondly, Mark tells us they were in the middle of the lake, which presents a further problem. Thirdly, they were very afraid, thinking they saw an apparition. Now, usually, if you see somebody walking along the shore, you don't, the first instant, uh, inkling is not to think that you're seeing a ghost, but somebody taking a stroll finally why would John see somebody walking on the shore as a sign it's not a sign is it so we can dismiss all of that this is a miracle and it's a demonstration of total power and authority over nature the sea is never at rest it, it can look and appear calm but there are always currents going on underneath that we can't always see and the term sea actually in scripture again is important symbolically not just it's not just a description when we talk about the, in fact the sea in scripture is never never conjures up what it does for the modern reader when we hear about the sea and the sand we're thinking about vacation and so forth for when a Jewish audience heard reference to the sea they thought of foreboding distress chaos darkness and invasion Because All their invaders had come via the sea. It's interesting that everything that's true about the sea, its chaos and confusion and storms and trouble, is symbolic of everything that is true of the fallen world. St. John, actually, the same apostle, restates this in Revelation, where he tells us that in the new creation, there will be no longer any sea doesn't mean there won't be any beautiful bodies of water. He means there's no longer going to be any chaos, confusion, restlessness, trials, invasion, foreboding. Instead, there's a river of life flowing into the city. These are wonderful symbols that the Scripture gives to us. So what we have here as Jesus walks out to them on the water is that the king of the universe is... Treading down underneath him, all fear, all confusion, all doubt. Everything that represents distress, darkness, chaos is being trodden down by the Lord. The world and all its troubles is under his feet and it will obey his command. See, what he's doing is he's showing the disciples the kind of king he really is. Oh, I'm not denying I'm a king. This is the kind of king I am, the king of kings and the lord of lords, the creator of the ends of the earth, with creation totally under his command and power, and consequently all of the affairs of human beings under his command and his power and his authority. The sea and the winds alike will obey his voice. Indulge me as I quote Augustine again on this passage. Justly they were afraid too at seeing Jesus walking on the waves. Like as Christians, though having hope in the world to come, us Christians are frequently disquieted at the crash of human affairs when they see the loftiness of this world trampled down. They open the scriptures and they find all these things there foretold. And this is the Lord's doing. He tramples down the heights of the world that he may be glorified in the humble concerning whose loftiness it is foretold thou shalt destroy strongest cities and the spears of the enemy have come to an end and thou hast destroyed the cities why then are ye afraid o christians why are ye alarmed at these things i have foretold these things i do them they must necessarily be done it is i do not be afraid this is a murky time a difficult time in world affairs for the church in canadian affairs in economic concerns, with military concerns, ideological concerns. Do you think Jesus has lost control? You think Christ is no longer able to walk out on the sea of all human affairs and exercise his total authority? Verse twenty is hugely significant. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Now We don't get the full weight of this in the English translation here. The Greek expression is pregnant with significance because it indicates a relationship to the wonderful I am sayings of John's gospel. You know that John's gospel is arranged around the signs and discourses. The I am sayings of the Lord Jesus. Jesus actually says to them literally here in the Greek. It is I am. Do not be afraid. It is I am. Do not be afraid. Many commentators see in this an anticipating of the clearer I am statements. This was a style typical of of, uh, description of deity as we find it in the Septuagint of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But we can understand fully and clearly unveiled what the disciples at that time didn't see, that the I am was walking to them on the sea it is I am. Do not be afraid. Now, if you bring that together with the previous thought of this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, maker of heaven and earth, trampling down the chaos and disorder of nature itself, you can see how absurd it would have been for Jesus Christ, the I am, to have had a mob make him king. It's laughable. Does this man need a human coronation? Does he need a mob to make him a bread king? The I am. It is I am. Do not be afraid. Isn't this important for us today? Whatever situation you're in, I don't know many of you. Talked to some of you throughout the week. You may have come to this week with all kinds of distresses, difficulties in your life. Financial, relational, economic familial whatever distress we may be in the I am comes to us and said it's it's I do not be afraid what is it he reminds Job Job 38 8-11 through 9, 11, who shut up the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you may come but no further, and here your proud waves must stop. It's interesting that in in this moment of this incredible demonstration of power and authority over all creation christ chooses this moment to speak a word of comfort to distressed human beings it is i am do not be afraid the prophet isaiah writes are you not the one who dried up the sea the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over i even i am he who comforts you who are you that you should be afraid i love that question that puts our problems the right way around. Listen to the force of God's question through the prophet Isaiah. Who are you that you should be afraid in that circumstance, in that situation? Can you turn one hair? Can you replace one hair from your head? Can you add any height to your stature? Can you add a day to your life? Who are you? That you should be afraid. Have you ever commanded the sea? You commanded the morning? You commanded a dawn? It is I am. What warrants your fear then? That's why we're commanded in Scripture do not be afraid, be anxious for nothing. It's not a request. It's a commandment because our anxieties and worries and fears, which we so often justify, are an expression actually of our pride and our unbelief. Who are you that you should be afraid? You think by your anxiety and worry you can add an inch to your stature? Or by words transform creation? Or by nagging change your husband? (laughs) Or by neglect, alter your wife? No. The disciples' fear subsides when they hear this and they receive Jesus into the boat, verse 21. And at that moment, another miracle takes place, often missed. It's part of the same sign. They've been in the middle of the lake and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. We saw this in the psalm we read at the beginning. Not only does he get into the boat and is the storm stilled, suddenly the boat's at land. The disciples must have been stunned by this, in awe of these events. Elsewhere, of course, Peter says, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Verse 29 of the Psalm 107, which we read, is almost prophetic with this event. As it says, He calms the storms so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. You know, when Jesus steps into our circumstances, He's quite capable of taking us to the right destination. That's why we're commanded to rest in the Lord. It doesn't mean be idle in the Lord. It means trust Him. Rest in Him. let me wrap this up does this sign then the walking on water the calmness of the sea the transportation to the desired haven help us answer the question who is Jesus Christ clearly yes it does he's multiplied the loaves and he's walked on water because he escaped a self-centered plan of the crowds Has he in so doing denied that he's a king? Absolutely not. Jesus here affirms his kingship in the clearest possible terms. His total lordship and the absurdity of any human power ever trying to make him king. I'm reminded when I read this passage actually about the end of John's gospel and the incredible conversation Jesus has with Pontius Pilate. John takes us to this eventually where this uh, question is directly raised. He's explained in his conversation with Pilate, his kingdom is not from this world or of this world. Now, it's interesting. Jesus does not say, my kingdom is not in this world. He says, it's not from, it's not of this world. The source of my kingdom, its power, its legitimacy, its jurisdiction is not derived from man. Jesus responds when he's asked by Pilate, Are you a king then? He's asked the question. What does Jesus say? You know the passage. You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. The purpose of his coming was to reveal not only his salvation But his kingship, his lordship, that's why he is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why the evangel, the pronouncement, the announcement of the good news was a term borrowed in the ancient world, which was a heralding of the news that the king or the emperor was back on his throne. That's what the gospel is. It's a declaration and an announcement of the total lordship and salvation and redemption of King Jesus. Jesus essentially is saying to Pilate, Pilate, you've said it. But he's not here just referring to his messianic kingship, but his universal kingship. The truth which he testifies to is the identity that John gives him in the prologue. As the psalmist prophetically writes concerning Christ and the nations, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled. But... A little. When you consider that that is the anointed one, this is the Christ, you see again how absurd it would have been for Christ in verse six, 15 to have received a coronation from men. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth have to kiss the sun, have to acknowledge his lordship, his kingship, his rule, his reign. He's already king of all. You can't crown the king of the universe A king. He's already king. Jesus Christ is already reigning. Go and read Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. And read about his authority. Above all power. All principality. All authority. Every name that is named. Both in this age and in the age to come. The reference to Christ's authority and lordship is not to some future point in time after the eschaton. Christ is reigning now. He treads down the waters. It's interesting that when Pilate, in his arrogance and pride in his jurisdiction, says, why don't you answer me my questions? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you or to release you? What does Jesus say? You would have no power over me save that which is given you from above. Pilate's authority was a limited, delegated authority, and the power of Rome was soon to come into judgment anyway. The king and creator of the universe, the very one who created Pilate, granted him this delegated authority, stands in front of Pilate, permits the question, are you a king? Isn't that condescension for you? Scripture says, doesn't it, he could have called 12 legions of angels. He was already a king. The question was whether he was going to be received as king. When Christ went into Jerusalem and they shouted Hosanna, that was a battle cry of victory. He arrived and cleansed the temple. And he expropriated the donkey, by the way. He exercised the ancient right of eminent domain. If anyone asks you, say, the Lord has need of it. He was a king. He's already king. And the next time he won't come on the foal of an ass, he's coming on his white horse. Every power, every authority is a delegated authority. All that we are has been given to us from above. Princes, presidents, kings, judges, rulers are subject to Christ and are given only delegated authority as his ministers or his deacons. Romans 13 is quite clear about this. The word Paul uses is deacons, ministers. They're ministers of God and if they don't perform their function that God has given them, he pulls them down. Everything which can be shaken will be shaken caesar must bow before the lord jesus christ it is for him to break the nations and depose kings and if they trample his word underfoot it's for the nations to face judgment and i believe that as a nation right now we are under judgment we get the kind of leaders we deserve we get the policies we deserve and ask for and our prayer should be that in judgment god remember mercy As we squander the rest of our inheritance in God's word and sell it for a mess of pottage. The earliest confession of the church, knowing that they should kiss the son, the baptism candidates would say their confession was Jesus Christ is Lord. As you've been hearing from Michael Haken in the mornings, that was a costly confession. We say that so easily today sometimes, don't we? Even so glibly sometimes. Oh, Jesus is Lord. That could cost you your life in ancient Rome. Because it was to assert the absolute kingship and authority of Jesus Christ. Part of the challenge for us, friends, is do we really believe it? We're always in constant danger of confusing this issue. I was reading recently about the Pope's visit to the Middle East. Maybe you were reading that in the press. And his speech concerning his great respect for Islam and its great virtues. This is Pope Benedict XVI I'm talking about. And he thinks nothing of being received as a head of state, as the head of state of Vatican City. Something Christ himself refused to do. There's a confusion there of the role and jurisdiction of a pastor, a bishop, And the state. Speaking the language of diplomacy, not the language of scripture. Not the language of the gospel. Today, the official teaching of Rome is inclusivist with respect to Islam. As an Abrahamic religion. In fact, uh, one of the documents adopted by Vatican II reads, and I quote... But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place amongst these are the Mohammedans who professing to hold the faith of Abraham along with us adore the one merciful God who on the last day will judge mankind. Unless you think that uh, this is just Roman Catholicism, is a document Available at the moment. You can find it on the internet. It's a response by evangelical scholars to an open letter from Islamic scholars. It's called A Common Word. A Common Word. And it's a letter signed by numerous evangelicals in in the UK, Canada, and the United States. Talking about the points of identity, points of agreement, the areas of common cause with Islam. Well, I wish these people spent some time in an Islamic country and understood Islam or read the Quran. At least hope that some of them have. Because Islam utterly rejects the divinity of the Son of God. It calls the Trinity a blasphemous idea. It totally rejects and denies the incarnation of the word, except a virgin birth. They don't believe that he was the incarnate word. They deny that Jesus went to the cross, they deny the resurrection, and the Apostle John tells us that anyone who denies the Son is an Antichrist. Now, how what fellowship then does darkness have with light? Where is the common word, friends? Our word is the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. We need to beware of these kinds of compromises. We can, of course, respect Muslim people, respect their rights under God's law, protection of their property, their lives, their marriages, but we do not honor and admire the ideology which is anti-Christ to the core. To truly respect a Muslim, and my parents have worked in the Islamic world for 13 years, I do have some idea what I'm saying. To truly respect and honor a Muslim, you preach the gospel to him. Because that's what they need. Salvation in and through Jesus Christ. In Islam there is no redemption. There's only the vague hope that if Allah wills, I might be, in terms of fate, I might make it into heaven. And possibly if I'm a martyr for the cause. And there I'll be given 70 virgins. Truly respect a Muslim person as a creature made in the image of God, we have to tell them who Jesus Christ is. Whenever and wherever men divinize themselves or the state or any order or try and usurp the place of Christ taking on the prerogatives of God, the faith is denied. Whether it be claiming to speak infallibly as the vicar of Christ, whether it be claiming a divine right of kings, whether it be the state as God walking the earth, which is our modern humanistic doctrine from Hegel, whatever it is, King Jesus does not share power. There is only one King and Lord. There's only one law, one salvation, and it's in Christ. This is what Christians believe. Our denial of this kingship, this transcendence that's so aptly demonstrated in Christ walking on the water is leading to judgment, especially in my own home country, especially in Europe, the present time where Islamization is running riot. It's interesting that uh, God, for whatever reason in his providence, used the Islamic armies, the Arab armies, to practically wipe out the Christianity of the East. You know that Christianity is one of its greatest strongholds was in North Africa. In what we today call modern Iraq, in Mesopotamia, in actually the disputed area with, with the Kurds. The Syrian church was huge, massive, wealthy, blessed, began to surrender critical aspects of the faith, was overwhelmed by Islam. Today, Europe is being overwhelmed by Islamization. The land of my forefathers. Holland. Now you know why I'm such a stubborn mule of a preacher. The Dutch, squandering their inheritance. Abraham Kuyper, within a hundred years of Abraham Kuyper, one of the greatest giants of the reformed faith, served for a time as prime minister in Holland. Holland today is one of the most liberal countries in all Europe. People go there from England to kill themselves legally. squandering the inheritance of God's Word. Today, they call Rotterdam, the birthplace of my grandfather, the capital of Eurabia. Because Islam is overwhelming large parts of Europe. And there is a nexus of hatred towards Christ, the strangest bedfellows, the anti-Christian humanistic elite, and Islam, cooperating together in hostility towards Jesus Christ, Europe and North America has for too long said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And we're facing some of the consequences. When we reject Christ as king, we're overrun by self-loathing and victimization in North America and Europe today. We've given place to two counterfeit claimants to kingship, the totalitarian state of the French Revolution and the Islamic Caliphate. Both are determined to bring all Europe under their power. They've got similar ambitions in Canada. Humanism is inherently suicidal and Islam is a parasite. It always has been. It's parasitic on West Christian cultures. And when it's used up all the resource, moves on somewhere else. Our only hope as a nation in Canada, I'm convinced of this, is to turn again to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, beginning with ourselves, friends, not the Prime Minister. Beginning with us ourselves as individuals, as families, as churches, as communities. Surrendering again to the Lordship of Christ so that from sea to sea, he again might have dominion. That was the dream. Many of the founding fathers of this country, a Christian dominion under Jesus Christ. God is doing a shaking. But in the midst of all of it, this is what he says to his children. It is, I am. Do not be afraid. It is I am. Who are you that you should be afraid? What does God say about the nations? Isaiah forty seventeen. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. He can blow on any nation and any ideology in his providence, in his lordship, calling for us today is to remain Christ-centered, not fixed on ourselves. For this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. For the kingdoms of this world shall be the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. That's our hope and that's our calling in time and eternity, as the Puritans put it, to assert the crown rights of King Jesus. Let's take a few questions, briefly. And let me just very quickly qualify. This is what a question is. It has a question mark at the end of it. So uh, give me the lecture later, or, the, or your friend the speech later. Let's put short, succinct questions and I'll try and tackle just two or three. If you need to go and get your children, please do. Um, but we'll just take, if that's all right with you, Paul, five minutes. I uh, to pick up a few questions. Yes. Say that again. Right. Okay. The question was, do I see Christ coming back, setting up a millennial kingdom for a thousand years on the earth? Um, first of all, let's be absolutely clear that there have been what we call three perspectives on the millennium that have been part of the life and history of the church for many centuries. We haven't always called them this, but this is what they've come to be known the first is premillennialism, which is the view that there is going to be a literal thousand year reign on the earth uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, the dispensationalists would talk about the restoration of the temple and so on and so forth. So there'd be two comings of Christ, a coming for his church in a rapture, um, and a second coming for the dispensationalist. Historic premillennialism uh, has, retains this notion of a thousand year rule on the earth. Another, the other perspective has been amillennialism, which is that the... Age of the church, the kingdom age, is the millennial age. That the millennium is a symbolic term for the kingdom of God, and uh, that um, numbers in Revelation, like a 1,000 or 144,000 or whatever, are symbolic numbers, 666, symbolic numbers that have meaning. Um, and that this is the, the age of the church. There will be one coming of Christ at the end of time. Amillennialists tend to be relatively pessimistic about the future, um, and the kingdom of God. Not always, but often. Then there's postmillennialists. Most of the Puritans and the founding fathers in the United States uh, were postmillennialists. That is, they believed that again that the Church Age is the kingdom age and that Christ is establishing his kingdom. It's not fully realized until the Eschaton, until Christ returns. It's not consummated until then. But within the context of the Church Age, which could be many thousands of years of course, we always tend to live with the assumption that our time is the last time. I mean, the Reformers thought that. Many of the evangelicals in the 18th century thought that. And the 19th century, and there have been many embarrassing predictions throughout the 20th century about the end that have not come to pass. Um, uh, the postmillennialist millennialist sees an appreciably long history in front of the church, with Christ progressively establishing his kingdom. Uh, they would take texts like... Um, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end and so forth. In the, essentially, it's amillennialism with an optimistic perspective on history that the nations as Christ commanded us in Matthew 28 will be discipled. There's a conviction that that commission will be fulfilled. We often see the Great Commission in purely individualistic terms. You know, tell people about Jesus. But actually, if we read the whole of that passage in context, Jesus begins by saying, all authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. There is an expectation that the nations will be discipled before the end. My personal perspective, if you're asking it, I could be wrong. Um, I am optimistic about the future. I would... I, take the view of the Puritans that uh, the kingdom age is the age of the church and that despite the murkiness of history and the spiral of history where there are times of progress and times of decline, Christ is establishing his kingdom and there will be a period when the nations are being much more discipled than they are at this point and that there will be a time of a glorious time before the return of Christ that he will come for a victorious not a defeated church. As I say I could be wrong I don't think I am. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, there is a sort of uh, argument uh, that's uh, become increasingly common that uh, books like Tom Harper's Pagan Christ, which is drivel from start to finish, let me assure you, um, if you want to uh, read a good book that deals with this, um, I would recommend the Canadian scholar actually, uh, Dr. Craig Evans, has written a brilliant book called Fabricating Jesus. He's a leading uh, New Testament scholar and historian, and um, he deals with a lot of these particular questions. But it's common to hear that, you know, well, the Egyptian god Osiris and various other pagan deities had a similar story and so on and so forth, and, and Christianity just copied it two things I would say to that. First of all, if you understand the underlying philosophy of any of those pagan religions, you will will immediately recognize that there is no similarity whatsoever. Um, Paganism is the worship of deified human beings or the worship of natural forces personified. Uh, The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the triune God, the eternal creator God, utterly distinct from his creation, becoming a man, dying to redeem men from sin. And if you understand the philosophical underpinnings of these pagan ideas, you immediately notice there is no similarity at that level. However, there were people like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, who, and they were friends, by the way, in fact, Tolkien was involved in leading C.S. Lewis to Christ, who were experts in mythology. And, uh, Tolkien and Lewis both used to say that Christianity is the true myth. That you had these little deposits, little hints here and there in paganism of as we should expect. If we are all descended from Noah, Ham, Shem, uh, Ham, Shem Japheth, and we're all descended from the same family. And from the Tower of Babel, we all spread out, carrying, different, carrying our history with us. That's why we have flood myths on every continent on earth, just distorted. We should expect that there would be distorted forms of an expectation of a God becoming a man. So Lewis and Tolkien came to the absolute opposite conclusion, that one would expect that there would be distorted, misdirected accounts within the context of paganism that bore some resemblance to the promised redemption by the seed of the woman. In fact, there's indications in scripture that even astrologically, there was some indication in the heavens of the coming of a king. The wise men from the east. Babylonian learning. Where did they get that from? Well, the Jews were captives in Babylon. So there's perhaps more uh, to this than immediately uh, meets the eye. Philosophically, there is no relationship. Historically, we might expect that there might be some distorted accounts of expectation of a Messiah, a deliverer. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. It's a great question. What do you do with Israel now? Well, how long have we got? Um, Well, Paul's expectation in the book of Romans is that there is going to be a revival and an outpouring amongst the Jews. Uh, Paul had the hope and expectation and conviction that one day some of this veil, this blindness would be removed and there would be a great outpouring so that then he says that all Israel might be saved. Not all of the Jews, but all Israel being spiritual Israel, Jew and Gentile. Jesus said God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Not, Paul says, not all who are of Israel are of Israel. The seed, Paul says, of Abraham, he says, was not promised as to many, but one. The seed of the woman, which is Christ. So the children of faith are the children of Abraham. So the church has existed since Abel. This is exactly what Augustine argues in the city of God. The true Israel of God now is the church. Jew and Gentile, all in Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians tells us that very clearly, that he is made of the two one, so that there is now no distinction, no division. And uh, we are spiritual Israel. I'm an Israelite. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a true Jew. That's why the issue of circumcision comes up repeatedly in Galatians, and the issue of the Judaizers was repeatedly dealt with in the early church, where there was this expectation that one had to be made into a physical follower of the jewish custom of circumcision in order to be saved but the true israel of god is the church of the living god of jew and gentile now with respect to the nation of israel or the jewish people our hope and our expectation i believe scripture leads us to believe is that as we preach the gospel to them we're seeing of course many jews have been converted not as many as we'd like to see Uh, There is a blindness. In fact, most Jews today, by the way, are secular Jews. The vast majority. um, They're not devout followers of the Torah. Um, But there is a hope and expectation, I believe, that we will, will see an outpouring amongst the Jews when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Do I believe that there will be, though, that there is some special prophetic significance to this strip of land well, Paul says, and Jesus tells us, that our inheritance is now the whole earth. The cosmos, the New Testament uses the term cosmos. Not a small strip of land in Palestine. That was a sign, a symbol, a sacrament of the greater inheritance of God's people in history. So that to put our hope in a small strip of land, which is nothing like original, the original boundaries of Israel, by the way, um, a lot of, of the prophetic literature from Um, some fundamentalists in the south in the states has hung a lot of hope on this notion that the reestablishment of the state of israel which was what 1947 was that this generation shall not pass have you read that anybody familiar with that comment so that the nation that saw the nation state of israel which was done by the british as they redrew the map of the middle east they redrew a lot of boundaries at that point gave countries different names in our imperial arrogance uh, the, this notion that that generation who saw that, so my parents' generation won't die until it's all finished, it's all accomplished. But Jesus, when he said this generation, he meant the generation that he was speaking to right then. His disciples' generation, he was referring to the destruction of Israel, of Jerusalem, and the diaspora then of the Jews in the Jewish-Roman War, AD 66 through 70, When Jesus prophesied, he says, not one stone, he said, remember, will be left upon another. And do you know what Titus did when he surrounded Jerusalem? He plowed up the very foundation stones of the temple. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The temple curtain was rent in two. The Holy of Holies is now open. The presence of God is now open to all, Jew and Gentile. So I believe that among the Jews there will be an outpouring. But the generation Jesus referred to was that coming seen in the prophetic literature of Daniel where he would use Rome to judge the nation of Israel. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He said, how how often I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Now your house is left to you desolate. He said to the women who were weeping on the way to the cross, he says, weep not for me, weep for yourselves. So I believe that we will see an outpouring amongst the Jews. I believe that. But I don't believe there is any special significance now to that strip of land. Now, politically, should the West defend Israel, surrounded by enemies, as they are? If you want my personal opinion, absolutely we should. But I think that's a separate issue to, the, to the, is what Israel means in the New Testament. Israel, the true Israel of God, is now the church of the living God. They are not all Jews who are born Jews. Paul says that they're not all Hebrews who are born Hebrews. I'm a true Hebrew because I'm a child of Abraham. Let's take one more question and then we better wind it up for the sake of courtesy. Is there another question? You have to wave your hand if you've got it up. Yes, sir. Okay. How do you go about reaching a Muslim? What's your approach? You had any success? Um, You know by the grace of God I have had success speaking to Muslims actually especially in Pakistan and um, There are several ways of approaching a Muslim person the 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 best way is not to get into a big row and argument with them about the Quran Tends to go nowhere Um, There's an unwillingness to critically analyze the Quran in Islam. There's a reason for that Um, in Islam the there is another eternal entity next to god even though they want to deny the it's the eternal son and that's the word the quran itself is thought to have been by most to be eternally written on a tablet of stone in arabic and it came literally down out of heaven as though there were no human authorship involved at all no uh human involvement so god speaks arabic that's why any uh translation of the quran is referred to as an interpretation not a translation so there's an unwillingness to critique the quran so if you go at it from the perspective of historical criticism of the quran you're likely just to be banging your head into a brick wall although i'm not the fount of all wisdom on this you may find some uh, muslims are willing to discuss that i haven't found that to be the case i find the best approach is to talk about the person of jesus christ all you need to do, and you don't even need to, you don't even need to draw, you don't need to give them two tables and say, this is who, who Muhammad is. Not born of a virgin. Did no miracles. Was not raised from the dead. Prayed for the forgiveness of his own sins. Was engaged in 66 military campaigns before he set up his military dictatorship in Mecca. Broke his own laws. And so on and so on. And I could go on. And you compare him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you just need to paint a picture of who Jesus Christ really is. Hold up Christ to the Muslim. They believe he was one of God's prophets. I often ask a Muslim, do you think God's prophets lie? No. Do you believe Jesus was born of a virgin? Yes. Is he going to be involved in the judgment? Yes. Well, how do we deal with the claims of Jesus then over against the claims of Muhammad? Hold up the Lord Jesus. I find that as I've done that with grace and with gentleness uh, and built friendships among Muslims that I have seen success um, and, a, and a willingness to listen. Different, there are different um, uh, sects within Islam. That has to be understood clearly. The Sunnis, the Shiites, the uh, Ismailis, the uh There's a whole number, actually, of different sects that are... Some are more and some are less open. To discuss these things. Um, But I find integrity, honesty, even when honesty is not returned, and a faithful proclamation of who Christ Jesus is. Uh, Many Muslims are coming to Christ around the world through dreams, through visions. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.